0: if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. All right, so Exodus chapter 4. So to get you kind of set up on what's happening here in the storyline of, of this passage of Scripture, as we talked about last week, God has, Moses has been out in the wilderness, and a lot of time has elapsed in the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. You've gone from 400 years. It starts with Exodus one. 1. Um, you you're, you're dealing with 400 years from uh, Joseph and the sons of Israel to the present day where Moses is, um, the, the climate before he's born. So 400 years have elapsed, and then uh, Moses is is born, okay? And then when more Moses is born, Pharaoh says, you know what, they're, he's already been persecuting the Israelite people, and he's trying to limit their population. And so the way he limits the population is by just making it so difficult for them and their slavery and their oppression that they, they're not even going to be able to have kids because they're... Circumstances of life are so difficult, and what happens is they continue to grow stronger, and their population grows. So he finally says, "You know what? We're going to have to kill some of these um, young boys." And so they they ask he asks some of the uh, women to kill the boys, and they don't do a very good job of it. Um, and so then he just commands everybody: Look, all soldiers, Egyptians, Israel—doesn't matter if a if a Hebrew boy is born, throw him in the in the reds in the uh, Nile River. Just throw him, get rid of him. And so. Um, things are desperate in the midst of that. Moses is born, placed in a basket, and uh, God preserves his life. Forty years goes by, growing up in the palace, probably ready to be one of the next pharaohs, possibly of uh, of egypt and he gets hot headed in a moment and tries to be the deliverer prematurely and He kills an Egyptian. Uh, the Pharaoh finds out, other people find out, and he has to flee for his life, and he runs off to the wilderness and he 's in the wilderness. Uh, while he's in the wilderness, he meets Jethro and his family, and he marries Zipporah, and he becomes a shepherd. For the next 40 years of his life, he's a shepherd in the wilderness, um, wandering around until he comes to uh, the Sinai Peninsula. The Egypt's over here. This is the Nile River, the, um, Goshen, which all the Hebrews are at, I think, is in this area. And so he. Please, and he's in the Sinai Peninsula, he's in the land of Midian, and he's shepherding on the backside of the desert, which is most likely is going to be here. And here's Mount Sinai down here. This is the Gulf of Aqaba, this is the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea kind of opens up. You can't see it because of the screen, but down lower is the bigger part of the Gulf of, uh, I mean, the Red Sea. So that's where Moses is at. Moses is here, and it's been 40 years since the big mistake, since the hot-headed moment where he killed the Egyptian. It's been eighty years since he's been since he was born. So over eighty years, really four hundred plus years, they've been waiting desperately. The Hebrews have been pl- praying that God would deliver them, and it seemed like God wasn't listening and God didn't hear. And then suddenly, rumor spreads that one of us has been preserved, one of our boys, and he's being raised in the house of Pharaoh. And maybe this is going to be the deliverer. And then, undoubtedly, rumor probably spread that Moses killed an Egyptian, and so they see. Evidence of maybe God working and maybe Him beginning to bring about deliverance and then the one who maybe they thought would be the deliverer takes off and He's gone for four decades. Forty years. Nothing else. Forty years. They don't hear and see any evidence of God's work. But after that period of time, God manifests His presence. I think Jesus A manifest, I think it's a Christophany, a uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus at the burning bush. Jesus speaks to them. God speaks to them through the burning bush and speaks to Moses as he's shepherding, and he tells him, "Moses, I want to send you back to Egypt to deliver my people." And so that's where we left off last week in a little discussion between Moses and God, where he's kind of pushing back a little bit on God, like, "I don't really think I'm the best candidate for the." for the project that you're, you're asking me to do. I don't think I'm your guy, God. I don't really think... So he goes through a series of excuses, and that's kind of where we're picking up. And I want to just give you one more introductory thought just to kind of set our minds straight. And and this is kind of one of the big ideas last week. Is is The burning bush is a lot of things. It's the place that God spoke to them through this. But but it's, it's, there's an imagery in the burning bush that I think is interesting to attach ourselves to, to think about. Here you have this, this very flammable bush in the desert that has been engulfed in the flame and the fire of God, combustible, and it just doesn't burn up. God, is, he encompasses it and, and there's fire going on, but it never consumes, it never burns the bush. And in the same way, God is looking for people who come to the table without really anything to offer I mean, we have lives that are like blades of grass. I mean, we're here today, we're gone tomorrow. We're all very temporal, okay? I mean, 80-plus years, 90 years, whatever, however long we're going to live now, 105, whatever it is, um, as life's getting extended, uh, is is a nanosecond compared to eternity. It's, It's not any big major segment of time. And when we look at that reality... We understand that God wants to come upon our lives and He wants He's looking for a people that He can rest His glory on and illuminate the gospel to the world around them that they would, as Moses did, be curious, see a burning bush and look aside and go, what's going on here? And step in and find that they're on holy ground and they're in the presence of God and they're going to hear about how God wants to deliver them. And so this is the background of what's happening here as Moses goes in this um, discussion with God. So Exodus chapter 4. Verse 1, Moses answers. God has already said, uh, he's asked the question, well, who should I say sent me? Um, I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm going to go back to, um, you know, the Israelites and Pharaoh. And who who am I supposed to tell him sent me to deliver them? And he said, well, just tell him I am that I am. And God gives him his divine name, which means that he is the self-sufficient one. God It's not that God began, God isn't right now, and then he's one day going to end. He doesn't have a beginning, he doesn't have an end, he is transcendent, and he is the only one who has no beginning and has no end. And so we kind of got on that more in depth last week. I can't re-preach all that, but God has revealed himself. I am that I am. That's who I am. Who am I supposed to say? I am. The self-sufficient God, the one who has caused all to be, sent you. And so then Moses answers, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will. um, And they will say, well, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him. What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff and he said, well, throw it to the ground. And so I love this this part. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> says he has this primitive, simple staff that he's been using to shepherd the sheep, and he lays it down on the ground. He says, you know, put it down. Okay. He puts it down, and it turns into a serpent. And he did what any reasonable person would do. He ran from it i don 't mind snakes, I just don 't like to be surprised by them you know i don 't mind seeing a snake if I know it 's there, no problem. but if, if I don 't know it 's there there's just something creepy about snakes that when you see when they 're there and you kind of sense something and you see and that they 're slithering or whatever it's just your knee jerk response is to is to flee okay and and that 's what he does naturally he flees i 've heard people say you know it 's just not Christian to like snakes you know it 's just not just I mean, there's just something biblical about you shouldn't like run from them. It, it's never been good for Christians to be around snakes. But nonetheless, God is taking. Uh, he takes tells him to take the staff, place it down, and turns into a serpent. And then if that's not crazy enough, that's funny. He runs from it. This is the next part's even funnier. So he runs from it. And then it says, but the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. It's 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 funny how we respond to things. I would imagine if um, if my wife was there in this scenario, um, she's with uh, the older elementary kids right now. But if she was there in this scenario, uh, there would be less argument about God. I'm not going back to Egypt and more argument about God. I'm not touching the snake. You're going to have to come up with a different sign. I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm cool. I'll go wherever you want me to go. But I'm, there's not, I'm not touching a snake in part of this equation. So you're going to have to come up with something else because I'm not, you know, whatever. That's, I, if you can make it, uh, you know, a puppy or dog, that's fine. But I'm not, I'm not, pick, I'm not touching a snake. But anyways, that's, that's not really what is in the text. So uh, I don't want to digress too much. But nonetheless, he puts his hand down. He touches it. It becomes a staff again. And he says, look, this, you do this so that they know that the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has sent you. And then verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, "'Put your hand inside your cloak.'" And so he takes his hand, he puts it inside his cloak, kind of um, his, whatever, robe, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous, it's leprous. "'Put your hand inside your cloak.'" So he took it back out, and when he looked at it, behold, it was, um, it was like, it was leprous, like snow. And God said, "'Put your hand back inside your cloak.'" So he puts it back in, and he put his hand back inside. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So these things are ex- escalating First, he tells, puts the staff down, turns into a snake. Then he tells him it's one thing again to have something that you have turns into another, you know, a, a creature, and then turns back. That's pretty cool. But now for your own physical body to be affected, as a way of God trying to declare his power and his presence into evidence his hand upon your life, puts his hand, pulls it out, and imagine looking, leprosy was a sign of death. If you had leprosy, you can't live near other people, you're diseased, you're cut off, you are to be, you're, you're isolated and you're as good as dead. I mean, to see that would have been a death notice in Moses' eyes. Once he saw that, he thought, uh-oh, this is not a good situation. Before he could react, he puts his hand back in, pulls it out, and he's healed. And so, uh, then he goes on to say, verse Eight, that they will not believe you, God said. If they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, then they will believe the latter sign. And if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is foreshadowing what is going to come uh, in the series of plagues that are about to hit Egypt. Either in the past, uh, so verse 10 But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who is it that made your mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. So a series of things are going on here. Uh, Moses is, again, he's in Mount Sinai. Now, let me just, before we jump from this map, he's going to go back to Midian here shortly, and he's going to tell his dad, hey, uh, or his father-in-law, hey, I've got to go. And he's going to not tell him the whole story, but i got to go meet some of my family, see if they're alive in Egypt. And he says, okay, that's fine. May God be with you. And so he goes back to, to the Mount Sinai, meets Aaron there, and then he's going to go to Egypt. And we're going to end the story with him in Egypt. So he's in Mount Sinai. He's going to go back to Midian, back to Mount Sinai, and then back to Egypt. Here's the question. Can God use you? And here's what Moses said. Well, first of all, I lack the credibility. I don't have the credibility. They're not going to believe me. I don't have the credentials. I don't have any integrity. I don't have any credibility. I don't have any. There's no reason why they would believe anything I have to say. And God says, OK, I'm going to give you credibility. I'm going to build your resume as you go here. I'm going to help you be able to um, evidence that I am with you. My presence is with you. So lay the staff down. Put your hand in your shirt pour some water from the Nile on the ground, and there'll be a snake, and you'll be, your hand will be leprous and healed, and then this water will be turned into blood. I'm going to sh- give you these things to give you the credibility. It's the first thing. I lack the credibility. The second thing is I lack the ability. Look, I'm not really eloquent. I can't really speak in, speak in front of people. I don't really know how to talk to anybody. I am slow to speech. I'm, this is interesting. Because Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house and maybe, just maybe, maybe... He really did have some kind of speech issue and whatever. We don't ultimately know, but I find that highly difficult to believe. He had the best education that you could possibly have in that day, and I guarantee he knew how to articulate his thoughts quite clearly. He was the perfect guy for the job. The problem is 40 years had elapsed since he had been in his position of power and authority. Forty years he'd been wandering around with a bunch of stinky sheep in the desert as a shepherd, and he had lost, forgotten, and begun to believe some things about himself that were just not true. And during this huge time of separation from the pinnacle of his life and his power to obscurity, he began to think, you know what, God can't use me. God can't. God can't use me. God can't do anything with my life. I, I think it's true of all of us. I mean, I don't know what your childhood, your, your teenage years, whatever, but there's, there's this point in our lives where there's, you know, the sky's the limit of what we can do and accomplish and be and, and what we're going to be with our lives. I mean, Kids love to, and adults love to ask kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, I'm going to be... And, and kids just have incredible dreams. And then, and then what happens is they get into the real world and they start, you know, their education, their college, or first job, or first situation, that, and maybe get married, whatever. All these life experiences begin to happen, and, and one by one, blows begin to hit in their lives. And before you know it, they look back, and the best years of their life were high school. Best years of their life were college. Best years of their life was back in the day. Man, I just remember. I remember back in the day when this and that happened and whatever. And it's like you, you live vicariously through those past years or other people that are in that season of life. We forget that, you know what, God is not just the God of the past. God is the God of the future. God is not defined to when you thought that you could do it all. Like we go from uh, this pride in the sense of I am this I'm the savior of the world and I have all the answers and you're a teenager and you got it all figured out. Right. To where we become cynical and jaded and we feel like, you know what, I don't have any of the answers. And I, I, and I, I barely know what to do with my life, much less help anybody else. And I got nothing to offer anybody. God can't do anything with me. God can't use my abilities. I don't have any credibility. I don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. And the reality is God is not looking for you to bring your resume to the table. He's looking for our surrenderedness. He's Looking for our surrenderedness. And you know what? God implies here, and doesn't imply, says very specifically, did I not make the people that are mute, I made them mute, that, who are deaf, I made them deaf. The people who can speak, I can, I, as, as much as I am sovereign over all of these things, I can do what I want to do that's a difficult concept to think that God would sovereignly allow cause have a plan in somebody having a disability but but I want you to understand it's not an unbiblical concept Jesus said when people argued about a man being blind is he blind because of his sin or is he blind because of somebody else's sin? what was Jesus answer neither but that I would be glorified through him you know God is the God who is glorified and our disabilities, God is a God who is glorified in our ineptness, our inabilities, the our our lack of resume, whatever. God does not need your talents, your strengths, your abilities. It's, it's kind of funny sometimes people are, you know, man, if so and so, I'm just praying that such and such person or somebody, and they always they always list some some grand, spectacular person that's elevated in our society as a maybe an athlete or an artist or whatever, and if if he could just. Wow, if if he would save them, think of the platform that they would have. Think of of the testimony. Think of all the people. And you know, there's too many examples where that has never worked out. God doesn't need celebrity endorsements. God's not looking for celebrity endorsements. God is delighted in using people with inabilities and with no resume and with humility in taking them who are low and elevating them and using them for His glory. In fact, that was what set Jesus apart. Jesus was set apart not because He's the second person of the Trinity, not because He's God with flesh, not because Jesus was set apart because there has never in world history ever been somebody that has ever stepped foot on this earth that began from a higher place than Jesus and that was willing to place himself lower than anybody else that walked on this earth Jesus left the glory and the riches and the spectacular um, presence and just all of what heaven is he willingly left that it's not like Jesus missed you know took a misstep and then suddenly boom he's on the earth and oh man I kind of, oh all right let me see I'm trying to make the best of this and he kind of went through his life and then then he kind of he, you know' been preaching a lot and saying a lot of things and then then some people wanted to kill him and he couldn't get away. And so then they caught him and then they crucified him. And then God said, you know what, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to resurrect him. That's not the story. That's not the gospel. That's not the story. God was sovereign in the birth of Christ as an infant, just like Moses. God puts the salvation of his people, not just the nation of Israel, but the world, all those who have ever lived, will are living or will live. He puts all of that in the stock and a a little baby born of a virgin. God humiliates himself. Jesus humiliates himself and serves the world by placing himself at the lowest point. Not only was he that low, but he was willing to lay his life down and die. Not just die but brutally die on the cross. This is Philippians chapter 2. And because he was willing to come and be a servant and live a perfect life and and die on the cross and be crucified, a brutal, horrific death, God has exalted him to the highest place. And so God is in the business of taking people who are willing to humble themselves and place themselves in God's hand and use them and elevate them. God brings down the proud and God elevates the humble. That is a biblical principle throughout the Word of God, and then we find that in this passage. I have a lack of ability. I lack the credibility. I can't speak. Told in uh, plenty of places. Acts chapter 7, you can read that later, and uh, Hebrews chapter 12 are two references, cross-references, that will show you that Moses had plenty of abilities. He just forgot uh, what God... Could do through his inabilities and in John uh, John chapter fifteen verse five. Let me read that for you. I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God is not dependent upon our abilities, nor is he hindered by our inabilities. God is not dependent upon your abilities, nor is he limited. By your inabilities. God never paints himself into a corner. He is able to raise the dead. And he is able to ignite combustible bushes. And set his glory upon something that should burn up and be gone. And use it and not even harm it. And he can use you. The last thought in this passage is verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God was very patient up to this point, but finally God's getting a little frustrated with Moses. I mean, come on, Moses, what else do you need here? And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to say. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand his staff, which you, sh- you shall do signs, with which you shall do signs. So where God guides, God provides. God is going to guide him, and he's leading him to something, and God already has it worked out. He's, got, he's already thought through everything. In fact, part of Moses' concerns is a part of the way that God plans to deliver them. I don't have time to develop this fully, but understand this. Nobody talked to Pharaoh face to face. Nobody walks up to Pharaoh and says, Hey, Pharaoh, I just want. how are you doing today? What's going on in your life? That is a death notice right there. To come up to Pharaoh and have a conversation, because Pharaoh is not just any guy. Pharaoh wasn't the, the, the latest Pharaoh. He wasn't just elected to be in this position. Pharaoh was there because he was a demigod pharaoh saw himself as god he didn't see himself as a king he didn't see himself as an emperor pharaoh saw himself as a god pharaoh was brainwashed as a child to see himself as god the little pharaohs his son would have had a little box and they had they, they, they found these things and had a little you ever had one of those little plastic toys where you push up in the, the bottom of it and it has a little guy with with um elastic string or whatever and you, you push up the bottom and he falls down and then you release it and it pops back up. Well, they had some kind of primitive version of that, okay? And, and Pharaoh would, the son, would put his there's a toy for him. He would put his foot on it, and there would be like these little slaves, and they would bow to him, and then he'd lift his foot up and they would pop up. And so he was trained from a young age that people bow at his feet. He's God. And nobody talks to God. And so Pharaoh, if you come to Pharaoh's court, you, Pharaoh would talk to his prophet and the prophet would talk to the people. And then, then the prophet would come back and tell Pharaoh what the people said. And then he would say something back. And it was, uh, there was always this mediator. And so Pharaoh was like a God to the people. And God is setting up the same scenario here. He's going, okay, this is the way, this is the way Pharaoh plays ball and this is part of my plan here for you. Moses, it's going to make it clear later. It's going to say, I am setting you up to be God to Pharaoh. I want Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to think you're God and Aaron's your prophet. And so you're not going to directly talk to Pharaoh anyways. You're going to talk to Aaron. Aaron's going to talk to Pharaoh's prophet. Pharaoh's prophet going to talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to talk to his prophet. Who's going to talk to Aaron. Who's going to talk to you. And this is how it's going to go back and forth. This is the dialogue. Okay. And so we're putting up a battle between two gods. And the only thing different is you aren't God. You're representing me. And, but I'm going to set you up as a God in Pharaoh's mind. This is what God is setting up here. God has a plan. God is working this whole thing out. And he has a plan. And where God guides, God provides. God has a plan. How this is all going to come about. And he is working his plan. And so, uh, verse 18. A couple of just incidental things that happen here in this passage. Verse 18 Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Moses, not very honest. Jethro, very gracious. Jethro was willing to take his probably lead shepherd, uh, one of the, the highest people in his, in, his, in his family, in his organization, if you will, um, in his company, and he's willing to say, hey, you've got to go to your people. Listen, you go with the peace of God on your life. Go, Moses. You do what you have to do. But it seems that Moses wasn't really forthright with all that he's about to be about and what all he's about to do. And then there's another interesting uh, couple things that happen here. So verse 19, the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them, ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. Moses is walking, they're riding on the family minivan, the donkey. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, as God had commanded him. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And then this is an interesting passage or statement. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Understand, Pharaoh, you're going to do these things. You're going to give me signs. But, but I want you to understand, he's not going to receive it well. I'm going to harden his heart so that he's not going to let my people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel... Is my firstborn. I understand what's happening here. In the very, uh, please tune in to what's going on as God sovereignly is setting the table for how He is going to display His glory in a phenomenal way that the world has never, ever seen before this time and arguably has never seen since. We'll see it one day, but not, not at this point. I will harden His heart. He will not let people go. You will go to Pharaoh and you'll say, Thus says the Lord, Israel, the nation of Israel, this is my firstborn son this group this huge people they're my firstborn son and i say to you let my son go that he may serve me i want my son the nation of israel to come and to serve me and if you refuse to let him go behold i will kill your firstborn son you see that some of you know a little bit of the story you know the passover you know what it symbolized you know what okay he is set up right here I'm, I'm asking you, This is let's go ahead and set the table. This is a big idea. This is a big plan. This is, this is, a whole, this is the whole thing. Here, this is what's about to happen. Everything is going to be in the context of this display being displayed through the rest of the next several chapters. want my firstborn son to come and worship me and to serve me. And if you do not let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn. Deal? He <laughs> says the Pharaoh, but he didn't really give him an option. And so at the lodging place on the way to the lord uh, the lord met him and sought to put him to death verse 24 and then zipporah took a flint rock a stone that's like a very sharp could be sharpened acted like a knife took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me so he let him alone and it was then that he said she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went, and he met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak, and the signs which he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words and the Lord had, that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, they had, and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. I want to just highlight for you three marks. Three marks of god's presence upon the lives of his people three marks of god's presence on lives of his people and these incidentally are three marks that are evidences of a regenerate person regenerate we talk about regeneration which i mentioned earlier we believe in regenerate church membership what it means is regenerate means to be dead and to have life given back to you and so all of us all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way and and we are born um sin uh dead in um in our iniquities our sin and our iniquities According to Ephesians chapter uh, 2. And so we're born that way, and God brings life. God is merciful to bring life into our lives. And when He brings life and he, he, he restores your life, and you're suddenly alive to God where you were dead to God, now you're alive, there's certain evidences that should appear in your life. And here's three that are highlighted um, back here with, in, this, in this story that I, th- I think are worth noting. Verse 19. Uh, the first one is His promise. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life, are dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, with him on the road on the donkey and went back to the land. Moses took his staff of God in his hand and he went back. And God affirms to him what he's going to do. God gives him his promise. This is what I'm going to do. One of the evidences of God's work in our lives is a desire and a conviction and a hope in the Word of God. Do you... Delight in the Word of God. Do you have a desire to read the Word of God? Do you have a desire to know the Word of God? Have you ever had that moment where just life's crazy, things are going on, whatever, and then randomly, just crazily randomly, suddenly pops into your mind, I I need to read my Bible. I should go read my Bible. I want to read my Bible. I need to to spend some time with the Word. I, I really need to do that. And there's this desire. Where does that come from? I want you to understand that is not a natural desire. That is the creator of the universe, graciously, calmly, inviting you into his presence and as sure as that thought pops in your head i guarantee you the next thought will be but you need to well you really need to. and there's going to be something distracting some kind of distraction that's going to come down because the enemy of the god of the universe is going to immediately try to find some way to get you away from the word because god has placed in his people a desire to know his promises to cling to his promises to know the word of god have a desire to know the word of god this is where one of the evidences of god's work in moses's life is he was clinging to and he knew and he understood and he lived by and lived his life by the promises of god the second thing is god's discipline hebrews chapter 12 makes it clear that god disciplines those whom he loves he disciplines those whom he loves if 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 I don't discipline my kids, I don't love my kids. If I let my kids do whatever they want, I just want them to be happy. I just want them to feel loved. I just want them to be cherished. I just want them to be nurtured. I just want it, if they want something, I want to give it to them. I want to bless them. I want to just that. I really don't love my kids. If I don't teach my kids, that if you do this, you'll hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. Or this is not good. This is not healthy. This is not productive. This is not. I, I got to give them some boundaries so they do what is good and what is right and what is. And if I don't discipline my kids, I don't love my kids. And God makes that abundantly clear. I discipline those whom I love if you're my child and you step out of line and you're wrong i one of the evidences of god's work in somebody's life in a believer's life is the conviction of sin if you can sin and you don't feel any conviction i want you to understand that is an evidence that you that god is not your dad you're not a child of god and if you sin and there's conviction then it's an evidence that you are a child of God. Somebody once said, Bill Bright was asked, you know, what's the biggest thing you've learned in your life? And immediately his his first response, I don't know why, but this is the first thing he had to say. There's nobody more miserable than a disobedient Christian. You know, disobedient or sinful people aren't miserable. They're doing what they know to do. They're doing what their heart is bent to do. But when the creator of the universe comes and he sets his spirit inside your heart and your life and you are a child of god and his spirit is inside you then when you sin you're not going to be happy about it there's just this unsettledness and this conviction that this just isn't right something there's a disconnect between god and i i think the best example i can give you is uh genesis chapter three the fall of man Immediately, they sin, and they immediately, they realize, suddenly they're they confronted with the fact that they're naked. Before they were naked, it wasn't a problem, they weren't sinful, there was no sin, there was, everything was pure and holy and great. And now they realize, uh-oh, there's a problem here, and they hide from God. And then they try to construct their own righteousness. They get leaves, they try to cover up their nakedness. They try to create a covering for their sin, because they're convicted, and they are, for the first time, they realize there's a separation between them and God. And that was an evidence of them knowing God, and God immediately provides a covering, the the shedding of blood. An animal was killed in their place to be able to give them a covering for their sin. Fortunately for us, when we are convicted and when we realize we have sinned, God has provided a covering for our sin. He has provided Christ to be a covering for our sin. And so God evidences His presence in a person's life and authenticates their relationship with Him By his promises and a desire to know and to live by his promises. Secondly, by his discipline. And thirdly, by his people. By his people. Promises, his discipline, and his people. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. And he went and he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. Moses meets Aaron and then Moses and Aaron go and they meet the elders, the leaders of each of the families of of Egypt I'm sorry, of of the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And and their response is to hear and be encouraged by the fact that God has not forsaken them, forgotten them, but He has heard and seen their affliction. And He has sent someone to deliver them. And they worship God. One of the evidences of being a child of God is a desire to be around the people of God. A desire to be around the people of God. A desire to worship God. With, with God. You know, you don't have to come. In fact, one of the things we talked about last week in our, um, you know, who we are as a church is, is we talked about authentic worship. And, uh, you know, worshiping God is not about the music time of a service, okay? It's about our lives laid down, surrendered to God every day of, of every week of every year, okay? Our lives all, should always be laid down as an act of worship to God as we live our lives to Him. But nonetheless, there's something special when the people of God come together and they worship God together. And so when they come together and they think about what God has done, they rejoice together and they celebrate together and it causes the community of people to worship God. It elevates their perspective as they see God has not forsaken us and they're reminded, which is why Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of the saints together. You need to come together with the body of Christ and encourage one another with the truths of God's word. That's what that passage says in Hebrews. Come together and be encouraged. You know, I get discouraged all the time, all the time, I get discouraged. And, and I would imagine you get discouraged often. And, and if we can take and be a little honest about our discouragement at times, and we can constantly be encouraging one another with the truths and the reality that God has not, le- He's not left us, He's not forsaken us. He is still working. His presence is with us. His promises are true. Sometimes we have to remind each other that His discipline is present. We need to be aware of his discipline in our lives. We need to encourage each other through that. But if we will do that, what an incredible, powerful testimony to one another, encouragement that we give to one another, and testimony to the world outside. That may, uh, what's beautiful about it, if you go a step further, what's going to happen in chapter 5 is uh, things are going to get worse, a lot worse. And these same people who are celebrating and worshiping God right now are going to be mad at Moses. They're going to get really mad at Moses. Moses, if you wouldn't have come and messed with Pharaoh, things wouldn't have gotten this bad. And now we're going to hit this last couple of thoughts, and then we'll, we'll be done today. Pharaoh's response. Here's what Pharaoh does. So he finally gets to Pharaoh. In chapter 5, verse 1, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh. So this is the first confrontation with the God of Egypt. Okay? Little g. God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Hey, you know, Moses isn't asking for everything. He's just saying, hey, they just want to go for a long weekend. We're just going for a long, we just want Labor Day. That's all we're asking for. We just want a long weekend to go worship God in the, in the wilderness. That's all we're asking. We're not leaving. We'll come back and we'll, we'll pick up our jobs on Tuesday, no problem. But just, we just need a long weekend. That's all we're asking. But Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, moreover I will not let Israel go." And then they said, "The God of He the Hebrews has met with us." Please let us go three days to the journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And so the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people and the foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make the bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather their own straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks they, shall, uh, they made in the past shall, you shall impose on them and you shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. So he's saying, okay, I've got it maxed out how many bricks they can make and we provide the straw for them to put in the bricks, to make the bricks more solid. And he's saying, you know what? Uh, they've got too much hand, time on their hands because they're talking about vacation and they've got too much time to think. And so I'm going to reduce the time that they have to think because Mo- Pharaoh or Moses, you evidently think that you've you, you got some great ideas of what you guys could do with your vacation time and we don't have time for vacation. We've got things to do around here. So now you're going to continue to build brick, but you don't get the straw. So now you have to go get your own straw and build the, make the same amount of bricks. And then, of course, continue to build the things that Pharaoh had for them to build. And so it gets much worse. And obviously, they are unable to keep up with the supply and the demand. Therefore, so this is Pharaoh's words. They're lying. They don't know what they're talking about. We're going to make it worse for them because they're asking for something that I think is unreasonable. So what's the point here? As we wrap it up, here, here's, here's the thought. Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh takes their request to leave Egypt as a statement that they have too much time on their hands and they need more to do. And so there's this incredible tension here as the people of God have hope that God has raised up Moses and Moses is going to go talk to Pharaoh and he's going to go show Pharaoh his power and that he's going to do this great thing. And Pharaoh clearly is going to be reasonable and, and then everything's going to be better. And so they think that the, it's finally, deliverance has come, simple conversation with Pharaoh, Moses will work it out and then everything's great. And it doesn't go down that way. This tension, that hope has come. Salvation is here. And yet, Pharaoh says, I I don't believe your God and I'm not going to obey what He has called me to do. Two two things in Pharaoh's response. Um, Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord and I will not obey your God. I do not know the Lord and I will not obey. Obey your God. Conclusion, just a couple thoughts. Why why do we expect the world to know and obey our God? Why why do we, the the people of God, expect the world to know and obey our God? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Uh, Why are we more concerned with the world voting our way than worshiping our God? Let me say it again. Why are we more concerned with the world voting our way than with worshiping our God? I think we've got things way backwards and we have forgotten what God has called us to do and who he has called us to be. We have had we have the expectation wrongly in our country because we came from a great Christian heritage in in, in America that we assume that politicians that have played according to Christian rules because that's what they had to do to get elected in the past, that they believe the same as us and they don't believe the same as us. They don't know our God and they're not going to obey our God. And so now that they are finding that they can get elected without having to play the Christian game, they're being who they really are. And we're mad about it. We're upset because they don't act the way that we thought that they should act according to our God, who we thought was supposed to be over our country. And and he's like our king and we're supposed to do it. And and we're forgetting the fact that we we are just like the people of God living in a foreign land with a guy over us and, and legislatures over us and people that some believe, some don't believe. But regardless. God is not our king. And this is not His kingdom. America is not the kingdom of God. We are citizens of a different place. And God has called us to step into this and to be combustible bushes, okay? To be shrubs that He can ignite His glory upon our lives so that the world can see that God is the God who saves. God is the God who delivers. God is the answer. Does that mean we don't vote? No, we have a biblical responsibility To be involved in the processes and we happen to live in a place where we have a vote. And I think by all means, you should do that. You should be about that. That's no problem there. But that's not the A game. The A game for us is that the world would know that Jesus alone can save. That there's no functional savior. There's no sexual preference. There's no marital status. There's no drug, no um, escape valve that is going to give people meaning and identity and and life apart from jesus and our priority is to help the world know that jesus alone is going to satisfy them heal them fix them give them contentment give them sufficiency give them identity they were created to know god and our greatest passion needs to be that people would know god not that they would vote our way We're going to have to shift our thinking. It is just ludicrous the way that the world is going on and the the way that politicians are separating the people of God into different categories. And we need to have an allegiance to Jesus and his word rather than other subgroups. And, And we need to have an allegiance to the calling that God has placed in our life. And the reality is that everybody is going to die and they're going to go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. And we need to be about not changing our world and our country to be heaven on earth because that's just not going to happen but to bring the the message of salvation. And we need to be willing to lay our lives down and lay it all on the table and say, you know what, Jesus is our God. He has called us to to declare His glory. and He's called us to be about His ways instead of having the fickle faith of the children of Israel who one day worship God, the next day get mad at Moses because things didn't go their way. And that's the way we live. We get mad because we don't like the way God's doing it. Instead of saying, you know what, God, you're God... And you can use me however you want, and I'm just going to surrender my life to be used by you. Simple question this morning is this. Are you useful to God? Not, not can God use you, because God can use you. It's a question is are you useful to God? Are you surrendering your abilities and your credibility and your whatever? Are you placing all that you have before God and saying, God, you do whatever you want with me? Some of us, for the first time, we need to step into that and and trust in Jesus for our salvation. Some of us, we need to surrender our lives, our family, our our jobs, our money, our our future, our past, whatever, to God and say, God, you do with it whatever you want to do. And and I'm a bush. (laughs) And you can set your fire upon my life and you can declare your glory through me your love through me the message of salvation through me and that is the application for us let's pray